Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. In November 2014, federal prosecutors announced that they had disrupted a terrorism plot involving two members of the new Black Panther Party. Both Olajuwon Davis and Brandon Baldwin had been active protesting in Ferguson in the months before. Prosecutors said they bought firearms for a felon and sought to buy explosives to build pipe bombs. Those pipe bombs, authorities suggested, were meant to blow up the Gateway Arch. But as Riverfront Times staff writer Danny Wisentowski details in a cover story that hit the streets last week, Davis and his co-conspirator were hardly criminal masterminds. Instead, they'd been coaxed and encouraged at every step by FBI informants. Now they're paying a steep price. Here to discuss Davis's case and the FBI's tactics in counterterrorism investigations is Danny Wisentowski, a staff writer at the Riverfront Times. We're also joined on the phone by Trevor Aronson, a staff writer at The Intercept and the author of The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. Danny Wisentowski, thanks for coming on today. It's so great to be here. And Trevor Aronson, thank you for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, full disclosure, I used to be Danny's editor at the Riverfront Times, although I did not edit this story, which is titled Leading Man, and it is such a good story, I really wish I had. Um, Danny, can you tell us a bit about Olajuwon? Yeah, you know, this this was a person who, you know, had a, you know, kind of a, a rough upbringing, but someone who, you know, according to everyone who I spoke with, was just so filled with potential and talent um, he was the first member of his family to get accepted into college. Uh, he went to University of Missouri in Kansas City. And, but he was also sort of this rising star of an actor in the local St. Louis theater community. Um, he performed The Black Rep. He performed in uh, this sort of movie, an independent film in 2013. And then his sort of whole life changes um, in the couple years before Ferguson. And he, he really becomes kind of a different person as this uh, incident builds. So the thing that seems to have been transformational for him is that he decided to live as, quote, an aboriginal moor. Can you tell us a little bit about this, this very odd philosophy he decided to sign on to? So I think it's it's clarifying to sort of think about this um, like we think a lot, a lot about sort of the steps of radicalization or extremism. And so Olajuwon's attachment to some pretty intense conspiracy theory type thinking um, a group called the um, the uh, Moorish uh, uh, the Moorish the Temple of Moorish Science, I, I, something like that. Um, but this is a group that has been around for about a century. But Olajuwon got attached to kind of a splinter version of these beliefs, and it's one that's familiar, I think, to others who followed um, kind of libertarian or uh, conspiracy theories. Something that's called sovereign citizenship, which is when people sort of take a view of the law and sort of the legal structures that take up society. And they say, we can sort of make our own rules in a way. We don't need driver's licenses. Uh, we don't have to pay taxes. And they have some very detailed theories about this uh, that the level of detail kind of stands in for the actual, um, you know, whether this is real or not. And it's not. Um, and so Olajuwon in, you know, 2013 and 2014 certainly gets very into these ideas that he can sort of take control of his life by embracing these beliefs both of sovereign citizenship, which is very widespread, I think, among sort of right, right-wing right um, spheres. But in this case, this is kind of a very specific black nationalist version of this. And if that's confusing to folks, it's still not that, it doesn't make that much sense even now. And even when Olajuwon explains it to me, he is no longer sort of a part of these beliefs. And the way that he put it uh, to me was that he got into the belie these beliefs because he felt that they could get him out of experiencing the consequences of racism and oppression. He thought these could be empowering ideas, and eventually they led him you know, right into 
into prison, essentially. And they also ended up alienating him from his family. At the point that he got caught up in the FBI's dragnet, he was a very isolated individual. You know, that, that's the other, you know, main thread that I started seeing in this story. Um, you know, that Olajuwon is approached by, you know, confidential informants, one of who, who is a friend of his own family. But this is a point where he um, has alienated, as you said, his, his, his friends and family. They don't want to hear about his, his ideas about, um, you know, that one can claim real estate simply by filling out, you know, forms that you print out yourself or his ideas uh, about, um, you know, that uh, black people are the descendants of Moroccan Moors who were, you know, came over to the, to the United States and, uh, you know, hundreds of years before Columbus. You know, th- this is, I think, for a lot of people, and I think a-, a lot of people can relate to this, of when someone is close to you gets really wrapped up in some powerful theories and ideas that they are drawing inspiration from, that it- it's hard to reach them at a certain point, and, it- and it's hard to help them. This isn't the best audio, but we do have some sound of Olajuwon giving a speech at a church talking about the new Black Panther Party, and we thought it would be great just to hear his voice here. Let's have a listen to that. This is not the first Mike Brown, and it won't be the last if we don't unite. Now, I know that said a lot, unite, unite, here, we, when we, we get in the street and we say together as one, but then when we go home, to, to our families or to our organizations, we seem to forget about that. So much so that we won't even deal with each other because of these small differences. And that was just two weeks before Olajuwon Davis's arrest that he gave that speech. Yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing to see the parts of him, the, the different parts of him. You know, as you say, in that speech is really just you know, a few weeks before his November 21st, uh, 2014 arrest. This was an arrest that took place, you know, days before the grand jury decision um, in which a grand jury delivered a non-indictment of Ferguson officer Darren Wilson in the shooting of Michael Brown. This was the height of the tension over a moment where a lot of people thought that swaths of the city could burn or there could be real serious, uh, you know, terrorist activity. And so for this announcement to come by the FBI that they'd stopped, you know, people planning this attack, um, it came at a time that really indicates that they wanted to show that they had control of the situation, that the violence could be stopped. And when, you know, looking into this case in detail, that Olajuwon and his co-conspirators seemingly never had access, you know, to pull off some kind of attack on their own, and in the end, there really was violence on that grand, you know, after the grand jury decision that seemingly was not averted or affected at all by this sting operation. Trevor Aronson, this topic has become a real focus for you in your career as a journalist. Um, you actually gave a TED Talk where you accused the FBI of creating more terrorism plots in the U.S. than any other organization. Yeah, I know that's a provocative thing to say, but it's it's demonstrably true. And And what I mean by that is, you know, you can count the number of terrorist attacks that have happened, you know, as a result of funding or, or assistance from terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and others. And then you can also count the number of terrorism plots that um, are like Baldwin and Davis's, where the FBI provided the, the means and the opportunity for the actual plot. And those, you know, far outnumber the ones that uh, are actual plots funded by foreign terrorist organizations. And, you know, this is a, a real kind of, in my opinion, a, a very alarming practice because you know, what the FBI is doing in um, counter counterterrorism sting operations, whether they're targeting ISIS or Al Qaeda sympathizers uh, or, you know, people with domestic ideologies like like uh, like Baldwin and Davis, um, you know, they're really saying, OK, we're going to find people before they strike. And they find people who, you know, based on the things they say, 
seem interested in committing some sort of act of violence. And even in cases where they don't have the capacity, like, such as in this case where they didn't have the bomb and the FBI provides the bomb. And then there are cases as well where the FBI even provides the idea where someone says, I'm interested in committing some sort of you know, violent act. And the FBI informant or agent will say, hey, we should, we should go do this and tell us based on the name of, of this organization. Um, and this has been, you know, something we've seen increasing, increasing over the years. I mean, the, the use of counterterrorism stings really begins in earnest in about 2006 and has continued and grown since then. And, you know, what we're seeing kind of more recently in the last four or five, six years um, has been the use of these tactics outside of the realm of international counterterrorism, but targeting people like Davis and Baldwin. And, uh, you know, I think that should give everyone pause, because what's really happening in these cases is the FBI are finding people who can be manipulated, who can be pushed and coerced in some way, and they provide them with the means to commit an act of terrorism or, or a violent plot that on their own they would have never they would have no capacity for whatsoever. And how typical is it to see a guy like Elijah Davis being targeted where it's very clear in Danny's reporting, this guy was absolutely broke and he did not have much going on for himself. Yeah, I mean you would be surprised how common that is. You know, it's 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 very uncommon. Uh, it's not at times unprecedented for the FBI to target someone in a sting operation, and then they find that he's got all this money and he has these contacts, and oh my gosh, here's this garage full of bombs, right? Um, that rarely, if ever, happens. In, in most cases, what these FBI stings ultimately find is someone who speaks provocatively, you know, speaks in a way that you know, government bureaucrats and agents find. Uh, find troubling and, and indicative of violence in their mind. And they then go and engage them and they see if they're interested in committing an act of violence. And in a lot of cases, you know, there are instances where the person is diagnosed with mental illness and, you know, there are questions about whether his mental illness was a reason for him participating in a plot. And there are plenty of cases, for example, where, um, you know, the agents, excuse me, that the target does not, you know, has neither the connections to buy bombs or weapons of any sorts, but even if that person had those connections, has no money at all. And so in a lot of cases, what you see is that the FBI will, um, you know, introduce money through an informant and say, okay, hey, I know you don't have the money to buy this bomb, but, you know, here's 200 bucks to get it going. And, you know, those cases have held up. And so what we see over and over again is that, you know, the FBI is catching these people who are on the fringes of society, have unpopular ideas, but certainly ideas that are protected by First Amendment protections. And then they are kind of pushed toward plots that they can't do on their own, that usually cost money. And then whatever the barrier is, whether it's money or access to weapons or whether it's transportation, you know, the FBI will provide uh, whatever's needed. We invited the FBI to be a part of this conversation. Matthew Brummond, who's a spokesman for the Bureau, gave us this statement, quote, the FBI does not comment on investigative techniques, hence we respectfully decline the invitation. However, I can tell you the FBI is committed to protecting the American people while upholding the Constitution. The priority of FBI counterterrorism investigations is to prevent violent acts of terrorism while paying strict obedience to all legal authorities and policies. The FBI conducts these investigations in close coordination with the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office. Danny, can you tell us in this case, what was the FBI doing to get close to Olajuwon and to get Olajuwon to trust them? So, I mean, just to lay out some of the basics of this operation. So, you know, Olajuwon was, you know, uh, Ian Ferguson, he was there on August 9th. There's a video and stuff that he is there from the moment that this protest movement starts in a moment of grief and a shooting. 
And he is there with some of the local chapter of the New Black Panther Party, which seems to be you know, probably less than a dozen people who are locals um, who are not really affiliated or organized with what's called the National New Black Panther Party, which is its own um, complicated subject uh, that I get more into in the story. But, you know, Olajuwon is eventually contacted uh, by two confidential informants. One of them is a confidential informant that he described to me as a friend of his own family. This is someone who we already trusted. He'd seemed, known for years before this. Yeah. He described him as kind of like a cousin. And his mother had known him and had employed this confidential inform, informant, you know, as a, as a worker in her business. So this was someone who already um, had a window to Olajuwon's life and to his trust. Another one was a guy who he had, who Olajuwon had met uh, during a protest. And both of these confidential informants apparently joined the new Black Panther Party or, or do so to further gain Olajuwon's trust. Um, one of them puts up Olajuwon and his family in a new apartment with first month rent-free and no fees at a time when Olajuwon had no housing solution. He was uh, very soon to have no place to really move his young family. Um, he had a, a young child and had another one on the way at the time. And eventually, they initially ask Olajuwon and his uh, Brandon Baldwin, the other member, uh, sort of the other um, alleged co-conspirator of this, to first buy a couple of pistols um, using Brandon Baldwin's employment at a Cabela's in a way to get these pistols. And at this point, uh, they buy these firearms knowing that they are going to give these firearms to the confidential informants. That is sort of the scheme that is proposed to them. And of course, you know, at this point, the confidential informants make sure that Davis and Baldwin know that they're felons and that if Baldwin and Davis are going to be buying weapons for them, they're actually going to be giving weapons to felons. And that's illegal. Now, that is illegal. And this happens you know, weeks before this, uh, the final transaction where Olajuwon goes somewhere to meet someone who he thinks is a bomb manufacturer to buy what he thinks are three pipe bombs for $250. The pipe bombs are inert. The bomb maker is an FBI agent. You know, the moment he steps away from that car with what he thinks is a bag of bombs, he's swarmed, swarmed by agents. There's no, you know, he is never all sort of allowed to put these plans into action. Um, and the way that the FBI builds this case uh, you know, in the plea agreement that I, I analyzed and looked at, is they, they show about 18 different days where they record very specifically when Olajuwon makes a statement about bombs. And these are very curious quotes in that they are, you know, single words almost. Like you don't get a big paragraph of Davis explaining, we'll put the bomb in the arch here and then we'll send it and then we'll go. It's just, you know, guys kind of spitballing. And what Olajuwon tells me is that most, many of these conversations took place where they're high on weed, you know, they're, they're all smoking weed together. The confidential informants have presented to them that the reason they have money is that they're weed dealers. Um, and they're talking about these plans. And it's really, you know, even in the government's, in the, you know, the prosecution's case, you know, all of, you know, the quotes, the damning incriminating evidence is extremely um, minute in it's Olajuwon seeing a video of the bomb and him saying, that's a start. And, you know, it's just those words or um, Brandon Baldwin talking about trying to target Thomas Jackson or the Arch. And I think, you know, what was so rev revelatory for me in reporting this is when I talked to the U.S. attorney at the time, Richard Callahan, and I asked him, were these guys really going to bomb the Arch? I mean, how, you know, th these were the reports that were coming out in the early news coverage of this case. And Callahan refused to even discuss these targets, saying that it would um, inaccurately sensationalize this, that he couldn't even get into all of the things they were talking about. And yet at the same time, Callahan, in that conversation with me and in the press releases that his office put out, said that they, they saved lives through this operation. And so there is a, a fundamental contradiction 
in the way that you look at enforcement and you look at defining the danger of who they were, the FBI can say that they save lives and that you know regular people don't agree to buy a bomb. You know, you know uh, innocent people don't meet people late at night to buy what they think is a pipe bomb. And yet at the same time, when we think of what cops usually do, investigating thefts or tracking down suspects, they don't arrange a theatrical production using you know, fake objects to steal. They don't leave a car open and then wait around encouraging someone to steal it and then arrest them for stealing the car. This is a very different way and a different philosophy, really, of the way that criminal justice works. And I think to acknowledge that is to both understand and to say that someone like Olajuwon should accept responsibility. But at the same time, you could look at the FBI and saying, this is not the way that we usually think about um, you know, justice as a, a scale weighing, weighing the innocence versus evidence. This is something much different and functions much more like a script where you put an actor in and see if they'll play the role. I'm talking with journalist Danny Wisentowski and Trevor Aronson about the story of Olajuwon Davis, who was at the center of the local FBI sting in the wake of Ferguson in 2014. Um, Danny, in some cases, these confidential informants end up um, really cashing in, even while the people that they take down end up going to prison. And in this case, both Olajuwon Davis and Brandon Baldwin ended up um, pleading guilty. You know, they did. And they, they, they pled guilty to seven years um, uh, in prison. And they'll be re- they have a release date for next year around December. And, you know, I actually got a response from Olajuwon on the on the day our, the RFT story came out. And so, you know, he'd actually responded a little bit more to my questions about why he, why did he take this plea deal? Um, you know, if he's, he so disputes the, the version of himself that's presented. And he emailed me to say um, that he felt obligated to take that deal because he was afraid of getting 30 years for, you know, for a bomb plot that he, you know, you know, felt enabled uh, by and given support by people he thought were his friends. Um, he said that the government wanted a conviction and I wanted a greater chance at seeing my children. Uh, he told me I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of breaking the law and behaving foolishly, but my motivations were not to harm or hurt others. That is all I will say about that. It is not what it seems. Um, and I think, you know, he the point that he brings up, obviously people in jail will say, we, we assume that they'll say that they're innocent. But we have even... In the government's case, in all of these quotes, we have such a very little understanding of how this plot was constructed, who planned it. What did the confidential informant say that allowed, you know, that prompted some of these responses? Um, these are the questions that would come up in trial that perhaps a lawyer would say. But as Elijah once said, he was facing 30 years. He was facing, you know, losing his entire life over this. And, you know, he now has to reckon with that. And he'll be coming out, um, you know, prison with, a, you know, a record that shows him as a domestic terrorist when... You know, really everything that I've seen and even the evidence the government provides shows that he is something different than that. And and what he actually is in this case is, is almost seems like a question for the philosophy of criminal justice to answer and, and not, um, you know, not the FBI. Trevor, in 2017, the FBI listed Davis's case in a secret memo warning of the rise of a black identity extremist movement. The agency wrote that, quote, perceptions of police brutality against African-Americans had spurred an increase in premeditated, retaliatory, lethal violence against law enforcement. Do you think they're onto something here that guys like Elijah Davis are part of a movement that we should be frightened about? No, I mean the FBI was certainly, you know, rightly criticized for the the paper that that showed that. And what they did was they they put together a number of cases that were involving black men committing violence or, or acts of violence in the name of a supposed, you know, kind of black nation. Um, but really, what black identity extremism in the FBI's view is is this idea that you know black people are under threat from law enforcement 
And for that reason, they believe it is okay to commit violence in response. And, you know, to, to satisfy that kind of theory that the FBI had, they, they put together kind of, you know, uh, rather, rather uncarefully a number of cases that didn't necessarily meet that. You know, there was the example of the, the, the person in Dallas who, um, who, who shot at and killed a number of Dallas police officers because of violence there. Uh, but there's really nothing to support the idea that this is an existing ideology like you might see with like an Al-Qaeda ideology or an ISIS ideology or, or more concerningly recently a white supremacist or white nationalist ideology. And what we've seen recently is the FBI walked this back. In, in congressional testimony, Christopher Wray, the FBI director, has said that they're no longer um, singling out black identity extremism as a, as a kind of singular um, ideology, but instead are lumping it together with what they're calling race-based ideology uh, to include things like white supremacy as, as well. Um, but, you know, that being said, I mean, the FBI has a, a reputation for throughout its history being a, a, a right-leaning organization and seeing threats from right-wing ideologies uh, as being less significant than those of left-wing ideologies. And, you know, we can look back at the FBI's treatment and investigations of the original Black Panther Party as just one example. And I, I think this, you know, the Black identity extremism label is really symptomatic of the FBI viewing, um, you know, viewing this type of behavior or ideology or ideas coming from a minority group as being sufficiently or significantly more dangerous than, say, a white supremacist. Okay, Trevor, um, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and thank you as well to Danny Wisentowski, Riverfront Times staff writer. His story, Leading Man, can be found at riverfronttimes.com. Thank you. Thank you so much.